Hey guys, lots of guys today, well, a, few, a few less girls. Hey guys, coming in. Um, we've been looking at Mark chapters 10, 9 to 10 and this is Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem and he's training his disciples on the way and we're now the second half of chapter 10 as Stuart just read. We're getting very close to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, which we'll look at next week. So he's now uh, near Jericho, and so he's come, from, he's come from Caesarea Philippi, which is north of this map, and come down to Capernaum, and down, now he's just coming into Jericho. This is Jericho, next slide, um, and today... It's part of Palestine. And uh, next slide today. And um, this is Herod Antipas's winter palace in Jericho, as it was. And the next one as well. It's another view of Herod Antipas's winter palace. He had a palace, remember, at Tiberius on the Sea of Galilee, which is his main residence. But here, his winter palace. Um, yeah, and this is looking from Jericho towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem up on the hill, and in uh, Florabella we worked out that it's the same distance uh, from Penrith to Katoomba and the same height difference, right? Except, of course, Jericho is well below sea level, a couple of hundred feet below, metres below sea level. So it's the lowest place in the world. and It says, it says it's the oldest city in the world. Is that, can that be yeah, true? Yeah, maybe 10,000. 10,000-year-old city, Jericho. Wow. So this is where Jesus is for this incident, just coming into Jericho. And next week he'll head up towards Jerusalem. And it is up. Right. <clears throat> yeah, as Stuart said, we looked at Jesus' third passion prediction. His first was at Caesarea Philippi, right in the north. His second at Capernaum. And now, as he comes into uh, Jericho, his third passion prediction, where he tells his disciples explicitly what is going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. And Mark has this scary moment where the disciples are astonished as they look on as Jesus strides out towards Jerusalem. And people are hanging back afraid. Why are they astonished and afraid? Was it something in the way that Jesus is now striding out almost regal in his determination to go to Jerusalem? Uh, They know something's afoot. They know it's going to be dangerous. They know it's going to be momentous. And I think that's why they're astonished and afraid. And Mark... um, says that Jesus took the 12 aside and explained what's going to happen. Son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And again, the disciples, again, as Stuart highlighted, are flummoxed by what Jesus says will happen. And they don't understand what's going on. And as a sign that they really just do not comprehend what's going to happen at Jerusalem, 
James and John come up and say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus says, Oh, yeah, what's this about? Uh, and I think James and John are doing a kind of preemptive strike. There are two sets of brothers in the disciples James and John, and Peter and Andrew. And they were the very first disciples to be called by Jesus back in chapter 1. And presumably they're going to be the top of the tree. When Jesus becomes king, he'll want a chief secretary of foreign affairs or, I don't know, a vice president or whatever. And James and John say, yes, we're up for that job. And I think they're kind of getting in ahead of Peter and Andrew. My goodness, they haven't begun to understand what they're talking about. Uh, Verse 37, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, what does glory mean here? Glory means kingly rule, kingly power. I don't think they're thinking Jesus will light up uh, like he did in his transfiguration. Uh, That may happen. But that's not what glory means here. Glory is authority. Glory is what Solomon had when he sat on that amazing throne in in 1 Kings, made of ivory. And the writer of Kings says, there was never any throne like this in the history of the world, with lions on either side, covered in gold. I think that's the kind of picture that they have of Jesus' glory when he comes to rule the world and they want to be on his right and on his left in those privileged positions of honour when he comes in his power. And Jesus' response is revealing. It resonates right through to the terrible moment in chapter 15, verse 27. Who is on the right and the left side of Jesus when he comes in his glory. It's the two criminals who are crucified on either side of him. And Mark uses exactly the same language on the left and on the right. Um, And that's when Jesus is, is enthroned with King of the Jews written above his head. And James and John, Jesus says, you don't know what you are asking that you would come, you would be on my left and the right when I come into my glory. They have no idea what that's going to mean. And Jesus says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? So these are obscure metaphors. I think James and John know that something bad's going to happen. And Jesus is asking, can you endure it? And they say, yeah, for sure, whatever it takes, we're there. And again, we see the overconfidence of the disciples. This metaphor of the cup and baptism, the cup takes us back to Isaiah chapter 51, the cup of suffering, or Jeremiah's references to the cup of the wrath of God. Jesus is to drink from a cup. And when we get to Gethsemane, he prays that this cup of suffering will be taken from him and he will not have to drink it. Uh, And baptism is the idea of judgment, going into the waters of judgment 
and then coming out. And the idea of both cup and baptism is fullness. Drinking the cup is internal, you drink it in. Baptism is about what externally surrounds you. So both of those metaphors together, what's internal, what's around, what will be around Jesus, are talking about the fullness of the suffering he will experience. Um, and James and John, are you able to be part of that, he asks. And they say, yes, we can do that. And Jesus says, verse 39, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. In other words, you will have to suffer. And we know from Acts chapter 12 that James uh, was one of the early martyrs. He was executed, James the brother of John. The other James is James the brother of Jesus who becomes one of the early church leaders. But James the brother of John is executed by Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. And John lives to a long to an old age, but he's persecuted and dies in prison as far as we know. So they do suffer for Jesus. But then Jesus says, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom it has been prepared. Uh, That's all he'll say for now, but as, as I said before, as we read the story, we'll find out what's going on with that. And then the other disciples are angry with James and John. Uh, You bet they are, right? Because here are James and John pushing in to become the more dominant uh, leaders within the kingdom. And I suspect they're indignant because they want to be that. And particularly Peter and Andrew perhaps have similar ambitions. And so they're angry at James and John. And so then Jesus teaches about power. Um, And it's one of the most important statements of power in Jesus' teaching. And it's one of the most important statements about power in the history of the world, right? And whenever we're thinking about, whenever I'm thinking about power or authority or leadership, I know, know this is true for Stuart as well, we keep coming back to verses 42 to 45. This is where Jesus lands the punch. He really does. This is what power is all about, he says. And Mark chapter 10 verse 45 is often quoted without the context of power and and the discussion of power. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We talk about that as a statement of atonement theology, which it is. But sometimes we forget that it's also a statement about power and the nature of power and the nature of leadership in the kingdom of God. What is atonement theology? Well, ransom is this idea of paying the price of a slave, the freedom price. And Jesus pays the price for our sin so that we can go free, that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. And this is what Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 to 53. The servant of the Lord will pour out his life as an offering for sin. So this is a prophecy 600 years 
before Jesus. And this servant of the Lord will take our pain, bear our suffering, be pierced for our transgressions, be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was due to us will be placed on him and we will come to peace with God as a result. And by his wounds, we are healed. And Jesus is saying, I am that servant of the Lord that Isaiah prophesied about. I have come to atone for your sins, to be a ransom for many, to set you free. What an extraordinary, wonderful, precious statement of the gospel that is. It's really regarded as one of the key, or if not the key, statement in the Bible about the meaning of Jesus' death and the heart of the gospel. But in modern Western Christianity, we have separated that atonement theology off from what Jesus says here about the nature of power and the, and the nature of God's kingdom. And here in verses 42 to 45, we get Jesus' statement of the meaning of the cross in the context of his statement about the redefinition of power. And if you want to understand power, look at the cross. And if you want to understand the meaning of the cross, think about what it means for Jesus to be king, to come in his power. And this is one of the great divides in Christian readings of the gospel. People put Jesus being king in power on one side and Jesus coming to die for our sins on the other side. And if you look at different churches, some churches think the gospel is all about the kingdom of God, which for them means making the world a better place in Jesus' name following Jesus by caring for the sick, the marginalised, the weak and the hungry and so on and forget about that stuff about Jesus on the cross. But other churches say, no, it's all about that stuff about Jesus on the cross and we're here as the church to tell people that Jesus died for their sins so that they could go to heaven. But that social action stuff... That's for politicians and social workers, not for the church. So you've got these two kind of strands of church within the world who emphasise these two different things, whereas they really should be together. And it's really our responsibility to see them together, to hold them together. Both are true, both belong together. Because the whole point of this passage is that when Jesus becomes king... He does it through giving his life as a ransom for many. Uh, And conversely, he gives his life as a ransom for many so that a new world can be inaugurated where there is a new understanding of power. This is what the disciples had to learn in the book of Acts. They say in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, yes to the kingdom, but no to the way they were understanding the kingdom. It's a different kind of power. And we see this in Acts. Many get killed, many are persecuted, some are shipwrecked, and so on. But by the end of Acts, Paul the Apostle can preach Jesus is Lord under the nose of Caesar, um, openly and unhindered. That is the power of the kingdom, that the gospel has been able to go out into the, into the whole world despite persecution, hardship, all the things that the church went through, despite weakness. Uh, and that understanding is what Jesus is already talking about here in Mark 10, 42 to 45. And Jesus says in verse 42, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Notice Jesus says, those who are regarded as rulers, there's a slight sneer to it. Those so-called rulers. From Jesus' point of view, the Herods, the Pilots, the Caiaphases, the Caesars of the world, people think they're in charge, but actually God is in charge. And he's got news for these people because they run things by tyranny. They lord it over others. They get their way by bullying. We'll send in the tanks and the artillery and we'll smash you to smithereens and destroy all your cities to force you to come under our rule and authority. And Jesus says, I've got news for you. That is not where true power resides. And Jesus says, we're going to do it the other way up. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And this is turning out to be the main theme, isn't it, of Mark chapters 9 and 10, which we've been looking at over several weeks. As we've gone through these two chapters, Jesus has been talking about the way of the cross for himself and the way of servanthood for his followers. This is how real power works in the world. It's through the ministry of the servant. And it's interesting, books on wise business practice and wise military practice uh, today underscore the importance of servant leadership and really have taken a leaf out of Jesus' teaching. To achieve anything in this world, now it's quite common for businesses to talk about servant leadership is the most effective form of leadership. 
So the example is at the end, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Ultimate leadership, ultimate power. So this statement of Jesus functions simultaneously as a statement of what the cross will achieve and as a model for how the kingdom of God is going to make its way in the world. The cross will be woven into the life of the people of God, which isn't very comfortable, uh, because given the slightest chance at power or authority or leadership, we want to yield it, wield it for our own good, don't we? Just like James and John. And the church, to its shame, has so often abused its power. Um, And if we think that as followers of Jesus, we can tyrannise our neighbours or our families or our church or the world, we have another thing coming. That is not the way of Jesus Christ. And if church has any authority in the world, it's the authority of God and it's to be exercised as servants for the common good. And Mark chapters 9 and 10 give loads of examples of of what that looks like. So Jesus' redefinition of power ends up with Jesus interpreting his imminent death as a ransom for many. His blood will be shed for our redemption. He will give his life to set us free. And Jesus three times predicted his suffering and death. And now he explains why he must die. It's to be a ransom for many. So the story from here on moves forward with this understanding that the kingdom of God is coming and it's coming through Jesus' death on the cross and then his resurrection and the giving of the Spirit, of course. But on the cross, the power of evil will be defeated. This has been foreshadowed throughout the Gospel of Mark. Um, Right from the beginning, the first thing that happens in that synagogue in chapter 1 is this man, demon-possessed and shrieking at Jesus, and Jesus heals him. The legion in chapter 5, the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 7 with her daughter who is possessed. And then the man with his son with the impure spirit in chapter 9. And Jesus heals these people as a sign pointing forward to what he will ultimately do on the cross when Jesus will give his life as a ransom for many and free us once and for all from evil. And evil will be defeated and the kingdom of God will dawn and the spirit will be poured out. Hmm. Somehow in our thinking, we've got to understand that we have to hold together the cross of Jesus Christ as a ransom with a new kingdom dawning and a new power. The disciples are expecting victory and power. And Jesus is saying, it's going to come by the Son of Man serving and giving his life as a ransom for many. 
So I want to just say a few things about servant leadership, as Stuart highlighted. Um, as we begin to understand what this might mean for us, and I'm only going to say a couple of little things. Uh, it's a huge, huge mind shift and a huge topic, of course. What is servant leadership? Uh, as I've said, churches are, are not always great at this. And right from the beginning, Stuart and I wanted to have a church where we really thought through servant leadership and a lot of things we do in this church are based on this passage. A servant leader is not just a humble leader, although humility is good. (laughs) That's not really the the point here. Uh, A servant leader is not just a servant either. Um, A servant leader is is someone who does lead, but they're using their leadership to serve, if you know what I mean. And sometimes we, 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 are, we are leaders who are not actually leading and that's not serving people. The fact that we're not leading doesn't serve people. So it is leadership, but it's leading so that people are served. And it's not just don't be bossy, don't dominate people either. So what is servant leadership? A servant leader is a person who desires to help, support, encourage and lift others up as Jesus Christ did. A servant leader recognises the potential, the passions, the gifts of others and seeks to develop that potential so that people flourish. Servant leadership enriches the lives of the people they are leading. Leadership can be frustrating and we want people to do stuff and sometimes it doesn't happen. And maybe that's because... We don't have the gift of leadership, or maybe it's because we need to grow in our understanding of leadership. So here are five steps for servant leaders, and especially this, I'm thinking of leaders of gospel communities, but leaders at work, in the workplace, leaders of family, you know, parents. This applies across the board. Wherever you have authority and people are under your authority, These five steps will apply. Firstly, to know your people, their gifts, capacities and heart and so on. Uh, So basic. Uh, If you don't do this, your leadership will be vastly reduced. Understand people's personalities and their giftings. Be attuned to who God has made them, what God is doing in their life. People in your gospel community... Who are they? What are they passionate about? What's on their heart to do? Um, And understand the interplay between their personality and their gifting and their life stage and what God is doing in their life. So all of those things. Listen, be aware, have empathy, understand. Uh, Be partially sensitive to who people are, what God has made them, how they'd love to contribute Give them freedom to be the people God made them to be. Um, Life is so much better when we're using our gifts and potentials together and people come alive and flourish. So that's number one. Know your people, their gifts, capacities, heart, personalities, life stage and uh, where they're at with God. Secondly, work with people on what they want to do together and as individuals. Not, I've got an agenda I want you to sacrifice for. 
you know, I'm the leader, so I want you to do what I want and I want you to pay the price for that. And so many Christian leaders do that. Um, and because they think they're serving through that, they think that that's servant leadership, but it's not, right? It's a paradigm mistake. No, servant leadership is how can we work together and have a vision together of what we want to do given who God has made us as different individuals and what the Spirit is doing in our lives? In that environment, people will sacrifice for it, right? And they will be motivated to follow your leadership. Work out together what to do and how each person may contribute. Spiritually discern as the leader, if God made these people this way, what is God's will here? As we try to follow Jesus and allow him to set our agenda, how are we going to be part of that given the people that we have in our group? Covenant together around that. The leader's role is to superintend that process. If a new person comes, it's going to shift the whole emphasis and the balance of people, and so a rethink will need to happen at that point. So it's a dynamic spirit reality, this, this reality of figuring out what we're doing together and who's doing what within that. And the leader is, is, a, is a key catalyst in that process. Thirdly, work with people on how to do things and help them do it. And these, these are just so basic, these things, but often do not happen and so leadership is not actually functioning. So show people how to do things or discuss with them how they might approach things. I'm helping uh, Flora Bella Gospel Community while Cam and Chanel are away and I'm having fun sort of working out what the gifts and the passions are of each person in the group and uh, then I'm helping them develop those different capacities. Uh, without that helping phase, it won't happen, right? So that's my role as the leader, to get alongside of them and help them develop those things that they want to do and we've decided that they'll, they'll do. Earl is um, doing meal rosters, so if you know Earl. And so I've got to help him with that. He doesn't just do it automatically. I've got to show him and a bit of accountability, get alongside of him. Michael has a prophetic gift and so really wanting him to lead Bible studies. So we're going to get together and I'll train him how to do that. Um, Sam has charisma and I'd love him to be actually emceeing the family meal nights. And he's somebody that people love listening to and people love being with. And so I met with him just after our DNA group at Lura on Friday morning early and uh, talked to him through about how he could emcee and what would be involved in that, what's the steps in that. Sam and Katie are very missional, so I'm thinking, well, how can I get alongside of them to help them figure out next steps and include the whole group in that? I found out Min is a major learner, and a number of us here are learner people. We love learning. We read many books every week and that sort of stuff, and that's Min. And so I'm still thinking, how can she use that gifting in our group. Dan has a gift of service, you know, cooking and hospitality gifts, which I didn't know before. 
And uh, wow. And so, yeah. So just it's, it's, it's to do with le- leadership is I've got to facilitate that. I've got to, and it doesn't take a lot of time. It's just talking to them after the gathering or after a group or whatever we're doing, sharing information, encouraging, helping them make a plan, figuring out next steps. People don't automatically do stuff. And I've had leaders come to me saying, none of the people in the group want to do stuff. Sometimes that's because they don't know how to do it and they don't know what they're good at and they don't know... And they're not the kind of people who push themselves forward. And they're waiting, they're desperate for someone to come and say, hey, you're really good at that, why don't you have a go? And I'll help you do it and I'll train you and at least initially I'll walk with you in it. And then hold you gently accountable, I'll troubleshoot and... And, and people are excited. The group comes alive because everyone has a role and they're excited that they're using their gifts as opposed to the group re- beginning to fade away and break apart. Um, yeah. So there it is. So fourthly, teach the group that this is how we're functioning. Give them a vision that this is what we're doing. We're all working together on this. We're all sharing in this. We're all using our gifts. And the leader has a role in that and we all have different roles. And it's great. (laughs) And people get a vision of it and then can celebrate one another in all those things. That's the fifth thing, celebration. Yeah. So this this is one little snapshot of servant leadership. And just a little tiny glimpse of what Jesus did for us. Well, if you want to make comments, make, ask questions. Oh, I was just thinking about the Queen, because I've actually been binging on the Platinum Jubilee. Yeah. Um, and Meghan and Harry and all that. Um, and she literally made a vow to the British people to serve them for their whole life. You know, how long she was. Like yeah. she actually has served the British people. Like she has a lot of privilege and you know prosperity and all of that, but it's because she's actually given up herself. And yeah. if you look at the poll, she's like the pro- most popular royal, you know, consistently most popular royal because the people really respect her. Yeah. And I was thinking about Meghan and Harry, like no offense to Meghan and Harry, but like basically they didn't go the distance. They just abdicated when it got hard. Like, this is my perspective. Um, yeah. And wasn't that understanding of we actually have to nut it out and serve? Like it's not just about us having everyone just sort of roll the red carpet. Yeah. But it's, you know, so just think about that comparison, I guess, and the, this idea of celebrity, a celebrity leader, which is actually very um, about self-aggrandizement and self-promotion, which I see Megan and Harry, to be honest. Yeah. As opposed to the Queen, who is like... Yeah. Yeah. In there for the long haul. Yeah. So that's what I was Right. Good comment. Great. Any other questions, comments? Wow. I I like what you were saying about, yeah, I definitely see that there's different trends in churches where they emphasize the atonement or the sort of 
Um, so kingdom ethics, kingdom kind ethics of kingdom action, social stuff. action. Um, and just that, I like what you were saying about, you know, it's our responsibility to sort of, uh, yeah, bridge that gap or hold that tension between those two and yeah. thinking about, like, yeah, how does that, how does that look? Like a, a really yeah. high valuing and incorporating of the atonement into our daily lives and then also this, and like seeing them connected, seeing them mm. in, in relation to each other, just still pondering that. Yeah, good. Look forward to what you come up with. <laughs> um, Anita. In terms of like ransom and atonement and Jesus doing all of that on a cross, does the Spirit have a role in our forgiveness? Or is that is the Spirit like a bonus? Like, it's all done. And and we could live this life like as sin, like as sinful people who are atoned for. And it's our role to tell people that Jesus did that. Right. Uh, the atonement, we are atoned for something. There's a result of the atonement. The atonement looks like having the spirit. That, that, that is, we have peace with God and that means that he dwells with us. So that's, that's, what, that's what the cross does. It reconciles us to God. And so the spirit is what that looks like. But that's the purpose and that's the, the picture of this. Yeah, that we may know God. Um, and God can come and dwell in us because we've been purified. Hmm.